0: The die had been cast, and no one could predict how it would turn out. Eamon de Valera, hero of the 1916 Rising, had resigned his position as leader of the Doyle in protest to the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1920. Incapable of going off quietly in the night, he proceeded to immediately throw his name in the hat to serve as his own successor. This time, however, De Valera was rejected by what had been his own party and his own government. But Dev did not take this rejection as confirmation that he was wrong. Instead he viewed rejection in the same way as the wise 21st century philosopher Sylvester Stallone, who said, I take rejection as someone blowing a bugle in my ear to wake me up and get me going, rather than retreat. Okay. Maybe Sylvester Stallone didn't use a stunt double for most of his roles and perhaps he took too many hits to the head while he was portraying Rocky Balboa, but the words, which hadn't yet been stated, could easily be attributed to Ireland's greatest leader. Despite the clear rejection of both his ideas and his leadership, Amon would hear the call for change. Not to change his ideas or policies but instead a call to change the minds of the people. The war for Irish independence may have just officially ended, but the war for Ireland wasn't over. Amon just had to shift battlefields. This is episode number four in our series regarding Amon de Valera. De Valera's Wars. Arthur Griffith, the founder of Sinn Fein, defeated Amon by a vote of 60 to 58. As was proper, Amon stood down on January 9, 1922, and promised to support Griffith in his new role. But as there always was with de Valera, this promise came with a caveat. Although he would support Griffith in his role, he would not support any actions taken on behalf of Griffith's provisional government whom he viewed as illegitimate. Once the business for the day had been completed, the Doyle and de Valera went on a month-long adjournment. Amon went to Paris to represent himself at a long-planned Irish race convention. The first Irish race convention occurred in 1881 in Chicago. These irregular conferences attempted to unite Irishmen from around the world on the major issues related to Irish nationalism. In 1922, the conference was to be held in Paris. The agenda was focused on considering whether the Anglo-Irish Treaty, signed against de Valera's will, was a positive or a negative for the Republican movement. Although the acceptance of the treaty had ended the war for Irish independence, Amon still acted as if the British were trying to arrest him. Likely, this was because he had never accepted the treaty himself. He utilized back channels to secure a false passport, this time posing as a priest named Father Walsh. His cover, however, was nearly blown while he was in London traveling to the conference. His wife, Sinead, described her husband by saying, quote, "...in small things Dev is very much given to weighing things. He sees all the difficulties and takes all the precautions. On the other hand, when a big matter is at stake, he will go boldly forward." Quote. While out of power and the spotlight, his mind became consumed with these small things, such as whether or not to buy a new fountain pen for the conference. Deciding to test it out before purchasing it, he repeatedly signed his name, Amon de Valera, in front of the store clerk, something that was odd for Father Walsh to be doing. His companions had to give him a strong kick under the table to get him to stop, and then the paranoid group destroyed the paper before it drew unwanted attention. Showing that he had zero interest in riding into the sunset, de Valera ran for president of the Paris Conference. The treaty supporters in government had not seen this feint by their opponent and in haste rushed to get Arthur Griffith's name on the ballot to oppose him. With him not in attendance, however, Amon de Valera cruised to victory unopposed after he pointed out that it was disqualifying for a candidate to not be in attendance. Amon always knew every detail in the rulebook. This was a massive victory for the anti-treaty movement, and Amon sought to capitalize on the momentum by forming Kamhail Hail na an anti-treaty wing underneath the Sinn Féin banner. The new organization and the pro-treaty wing of Sinn Féin agreed to work together during the 1922 national elections. After they won, the expectation was that they would form a coalition government to continue running the country. De Valera's campaign speeches, however, showed that the Inter-Party Alliance was in name only. At his first campaign stop, his speech was entirely about the injustices of the treaty. Among his many objections included his opinion that it had been signed under duress, maintained an oath to the King of England, and that it continued British military occupation of Irish ports. He also latched on to the partition of Ireland, attempting to blame the loss of Northern Ireland on the pro-treaty government leaders of Sinn Féin. The election was scheduled for June 16, 1922, and the Longfellow, as Dev came to be known as, was just getting warmed up. On March 16th, 1922, he gave an unusually irate speech to a large gathering of people on Sackville Street, the same street that housed the rebuilt General Post Office, which had been repeatedly shelled during the Rising. In his speech, Amon is reported to have stated that if the treaty becomes accepted, and if the volunteers of the future tried to complete the work of volunteers of the last four years had been attempting, they would have to complete it not over the bodies of foreign soldiers, but over the dead bodies of their own countrymen. They would have to wade through Irish blood through the blood of the soldiers of the Irish government, and through perhaps the blood of some of the members of the government, in order to get Irish freedom. This speech is so critical that it deserves to be looked at from a few different angles. First, let's entertain de Valera's perspective. Amon unequivocally denied the context of this speech throughout his entire life as well as when he was being brought to task for it by his colleagues during official Doyle sessions. This was another example of fake news in Dev's mind, who had often felt as if the newspapers were working directly against him. He referred to stories about this speech as an absolute misrepresentation, a misquotation that had been brought forward without any proof and without anything to substantiate them, as well as saying boldly that, it is a lie. The second angle to look at, however, is from the perspective of his supporters. He was speaking to thousands of young men and women, many of those in the crowd were armed. He was also giving the speech near the headquarters of the rebels who had fought the British during the Easter Rising. All of this was designed to convey a seriousness to the words that he was utilizing. De Valera was a gifted public speaker, who held his audiences enthralled. I have nearly twenty years teaching public speaking. If you grade him by the book, his speeches were not special. Truth be told, he regularly violated most tenets of professional speaking, including the fact that he would go into excruciating detail regarding the most minute issues. But like many of the great orators in history, his ignorance of prototypical speech techniques did not take away from the sway he held over his audience. Later in life, when Devalera's eyesight was failing him, he on occasion had his aide deliver stump speeches for him. The aide claims that after having watched Devalera give the same speech seven times before, that he hit every high note, word for word, but the audience never erupted into applause the way they did for Dev. In fact... The aide claimed that he didn't get a single clap or cheer, despite de Valera receiving applause every few minutes for the exact same words. Early in the 2016 election, some of my politically engaged students decided to travel to a Trump rally that was being staged nearby in Michigan. The students went in large part in order to be a part of history, not because they supported him or his platform but because it seemed as if something was happening at those rallies. In a course about public speaking, we had previously examined Trump's words and his delivery methods and found them lacking. In fact, one study in 2016 revealed that Trump was speaking to these crowds with words that rarely exceeded a fifth grade reading level. They thought that seeing him in person would be entertaining, if nothing else. When they came back from the rally, we sat down and talked about the experience. They had come back from the event in disbelief. Expecting to laugh at the silliness of what the future president was saying, they quickly recognized how much the crowd ate up every word that he was saying. They saw firsthand how effective his messaging was to an audience that would become his unflinching base. With all of this in mind, let's return to the moment that the veteran of two wars, de Valera, told an audience of thousands that they may have to wade through the blood of Irish politicians to achieve freedom. Although he was clearly speaking at a significantly higher reading level, de Valera had the same mesmerizing effect on his supporters. Amon absolutely was a stickler for words and assigned meanings to them that others would have interpreted differently. It is possible that he meant those words merely as a warning rather than a desire. It is also entirely possible that De Valera's words were interpreted by the audience differently than he intended them to be. But we also have to be cognizant of the possibility that his intentions did not matter, and the politicians need to be more careful of the effect that their words may have. Just a few days after his "wade in blood speech, he was at it again in Killarney, stating, If our volunteers continue, and I hope they will continue until the goal is reached, then these men, in order to achieve freedom, will have, I said yesterday, to march over the dead bodies of their own brothers. They will have to wade through Irish blood. If they don't want that, then don't put up that barrier. Michael Collins, his former second-in-command, pleaded after a third call for violence. Can he not cease his incitements, he said? They are incitements whatever his personal intention. Can he not strive to create a good atmosphere instead of seeking to create a bad one? This was the atmosphere that the vote was held under in June. The results showed a clear divide. Sinn Féin won 94 of the 128 seats. But of these 94, the pro-treaty forces claimed 58 to Amon de Valera's 36. Within the ruling coalition, Amon would be in the minority. Despite promises otherwise, the anti-treaty Sinn Féin forces boycotted the newly elected Doyle. It is impossible to defend Amon here. His organization had requested negotiated, and approved the terms of the coalition government during the campaign. Upon losing, however, they refused to recognize the formation of a legitimate government. I experienced this type of hypocrisy through my elementary school children when they begin to lose at something that they asked to play. They want to pick up their ball and go home if they aren't always winning. Additionally, this action was undemocratic, as it went against the clear wish of the majority of the Irish population. Despite only 58 seats, the pro-treaty parties had secured support from over 75% of the electorate. Michael Collins had worked to unify the two halves of Sinn Féin to no avail. That failure extended to his efforts to reconcile the internal differences with the anti-treaty Irish Republican army. The IRA, as it is commonly referred to, was formed in 1917, with members of the Irish Volunteers as well as the Irish Citizen Army forming the backbone of the organization. They later absorbed a sizable number of nationalists who had fought for the British during World War I. The organization had been heavily involved in the Irish War of Independence, and made use of guerrilla warfare tactics against their enemies at home and abroad. Collins himself had been a key figure within the IRA during the war, personally ordering hits by a group referred to as the Twelve Apostles. The Twelve Apostles were known for their assassinations of pro-British policemen and suspected informants within their own organization. Despite Collins' credibility with the group, the IRA sided with the anti-treaty faction. Collins and the new pro-treaty government proceeded to form the National Army, specifically to replace the IRA and to serve as their personal police force. The Irish Civil War would break out on June 26, 1922 at the Four Courts. Let's back up just a little bit though. The Four Courts, located along the River Liffey, was a key location for insurgents during the Easter Rising. Roy O'Connor, along with 200 anti-treaty IRA militants, seized the four courts in April. Oddly enough, O'Connor was attempting to play peacemaker. He believed that his takeover would cause the British to take up arms against him, which would in turn unite the two Irish factions together once again. Arthur Griffith, the leader of the government for the moment, wanted to immediately put down the rebellion, but Michael Collins won the argument, urging restraint in an effort to avoid a civil war. For those that see Collins as a villain in Amon's story, however, they look at this decision from a practical angle, pointing out that Collins needed time to line up his forces. Time was up on June twenty-six when the rebels in the Four Courts kidnapped J.J. Ginger O'Connor, a general in the newly formed National Army. After giving a final warning, the Doyle authorized the shelling of the Four Courts. While skirmishes in what would become known as the Irish Civil War had been happening for months, this bombing represented the crossing of the Rubicon, the proverbial point of no return. The historic buildings were all damaged, and the west wing of the building was completely obliterated, resulting in the dreadful destruction of the Irish public record office at the rear of the building. As a result, the sky was literally covered with burning sheets of irreplaceable paper which detailed the last 1,000 years of official Irish history. Throughout the standoff at the Four Courts, and to a somewhat lesser extent throughout the Civil War, Amon would attempt to claim that he was on both sides. Failing that, he would make sure to tell everyone that he was the only one on the side of peace. His public speeches advocated for violence, but in private, he continually stressed moderation and delaying what was now inevitable. Sides were drawn and men and women rushed to either the pro-treaty staters or the anti-treaty irregulars. In a decision that would later save him from prosecution, Amon de Valera declined a leadership position in the rebel forces, instead opting to serve as an ordinary IRA volunteer. Liam Lynch, the IRA Chief of State, would assume the mantle of rebel leadership. On paper, the IRA Irregulars had the immediate advantage but an inefficient command structure meant that reality would look a lot different than it did on paper. At the outbreak of the war, the Irregulars outnumbered the pro-treaty staters by 12,000 to 8,000, and were made up of the most experienced guerrilla fighters in Ireland. Unfortunately for these 12,000 soldiers, there was also shortage of weapons, meaning that only half of them possessed rifles. In fact, The anti-treaty irregulars oftentimes fought with inaccurate shotguns or handguns. Worse, they had no artillery. The pro-treaty state forces, however, were able to continually tap into British supplies of artillery, aircraft, armored cars, and machine guns. Just like it had during the Rising, the difference in weaponry would prove to be decisive. The government's troop numbers rose sharply, 14,000 in August 1922 became 38,000 six months later. Collins reorganized the Twelve Apostles and rebranded them as the Dublin Guard. This group was known for taking no prisoners, and were responsible for some of the worst atrocities committed during the war. Although there were gruesome killings throughout the conflict, Ballycedi deserves to be singled out. Responding to the death of five of their colleagues to a booby-trapped hideout, the government forces took their prisoners and executed the group by tying a landmine to them and then watching them try to move across the bridge. The Civil War was the most miserable time of de Valera's entire life this was not due to the necessary difficulties that related to military life, Amon had always looked back fondly at his time in the Rising, a conflict that he was absolutely willing to die for. Historian David McCullough hypothesized that this discontent came from the fact that de Valera had lost control. For the first time in his adult life, he was swept along by the course of events, sidelined and deprived of the power to shape his country's destiny. De Valera's own writings support this theory, with the Longfellow explaining that he felt as though he was watching the Civil War through a wall of glass, able to see everything, but powerless to intervene. He rarely went home to see Sinead or his children. His absence was particularly hard upon his wife, as their fifth son, Terry, was born 20 days prior to the shelling of the Four Courts. Rather than picking up a rifle, Amon worked almost exclusively on propaganda for the rebels. Always caring how history would perceive his actions, Amon regularly published articles in America that defended the Irregulars' position. Most of his propaganda accused Arthur Griffith's government of staging a military coup to install a dictatorship. At the outset of the war, Griffith was the main target for propaganda, but de Valera would come to regret some of the words that he published against the man that was first his former party head, then his deputy, and finally his successor. It is believed that Griffith died from overworking himself in an attempt to implement the treaty with England. He courageously attended 41 of the 42 provisional government meetings over a course of 37 days. The reward for his service was becoming confined to a nursing home with what was believed to have been a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Two months into the Civil War, he returned to work but was rendered unconscious while tying his shoes and proceeded to pass away from a cerebral hemorrhage. In his personal diary, Amon commemorated Griffith by saying that he was an unselfish and courageous patriot. But seeing that they were on the opposite sides of a civil war, Amon couldn't help but get one jab in, wishing that Griffith had not stooped to the methods that he did in which to win. Although his title was Commander-in-Chief of the National Army, there was no doubt that upon Griffith's death that Michael Collins was in charge of the government. We have kept Collins in the background thus far in this series, so let's rewind a little bit to learn more about the title character in Neil Jordan's Academy Award-winning film. Collins has all of the Republican credentials that one could ask for. He was a member of the Gaelic League, the IRB, and the IRA. He was imprisoned for his role in conducting the Easter Rising. He personally picked up de Valera upon his escape from Lincoln Jail, and was put in charge of the party when de Valera shockingly decided to go on tour of America, instead of staying and directing the Irish War of Independence. It was during this war that Collins gained the reputation as an elite military strategist in the field of guerrilla warfare. Collins personally authorized and conducted the most brazen of raids against the British, including the assassination of the Cairo Gang, which resulted in the retaliatory Bloody Sunday attacks. Michael Collins was so trusted by de Valera that he was chosen for the treaty negotiations, which precipitated the Civil War. Where others see trust, however, de Valera sees suspicion. There are a number of moments that suggest that Amon would have been happy to be rid of Collins. He browbeat the younger man upon his escape from Lincoln Jail, asking how stupid he could be to jeopardize the two of them being arrested at the same time. Whereas some see confidence in leaving the War of Independence in Collins' hands, others see practicality. If the war failed, which was always likely, it would fall upon Collins' head as the man that directed the attacks. The most incriminating evidence came during treaty negotiations, where de Valera famously quipped that he needed scapegoats for when the talks fell apart. Collins was in a difficult situation during the Civil War. He was a staunch Republican who had fought in multiple wars against the British. He also had been the clear leader of the IRA, most of whom were now fighting on the side of Amon de Valera against Collins. Although he believed that signing the treaty gave Ireland the freedom to choose freedom, Collins worried that he was being forced to do Winston Churchill's dirty work throughout the Civil War. All of this put him in the best position to achieve peace. His personal diary outlined his peace proposals which included acceptance of the treaty and a pardon if they returned to their homes without their weapons. There's some evidence that he was secretly meeting with neutral members of the IRA in an attempt to bring about the end of the war. In August 1922, he traveled to Cork County, an IRA stronghold that had just been taken over by the government. The war was winding down and the government was using their superior weaponry to dominate the fighting. Although there had been a number of attempts on Collins' life, he boasted that they won't shoot me in my own county. He was incorrect. Collins was immediately identified by a sentry after his party stopped at Long's Pub. Assuming the possibility that they might pass back through on the way home, the irregulars set an ambush. They pushed a cart into the middle of the street, and when the car stopped, six men opened fire. One in the car demanded that the chauffeur drive like hell, but Collins responded that they would get out and fight them. He had reasons to feel confident as they were in possessions of a Vickers machine gun. Upon its becoming jammed, however, Collins leapt up and started firing from a standing position with his rifle. He was soon thereafter shot in the head by a former sniper. On August 21st, one day before Collins was assassinated, de Valera decided that the Civil War was a lost cause. With all paths to a military victory blocked, he felt that the honorable thing to do was to end the fighting. In other words, without the possibility of winning, it was time to focus on how he could save his reputation. Upon finding out about Collins' death, he expressed shock. One witness claims that he sat with his head in his hands for a long time, eventually muttering, This has to stop. In De Valera's view, the best and brightest men in Ireland were dying needlessly. It is difficult to be the one to stop a war that your words and actions precipitated. Since Amon was not in charge of the effort, He had to convince Liam Lynch that his new viewpoint should be adopted by those who had already fought and lost so much for his original viewpoint. Knowing that the pro-treaty forces were out for his blood, De Valera traveled incognito through back streets while wearing a fake beard and a priest's vestments. They switched cars at junctions and after receiving codes that were whistled, he would travel on foot through a field to another side road and another car. Even with all of these precautions, David McCullough is astounded that the government never caught Amon, as he used all of the same hiding places that he had frequented during the War of Independence. To an extent, Amon was also surprised they never caught him, claiming that sudden death was around his every corner, and that most of the actors who had occupied the stage in political life of the country for the past five or six years were likely to go down in this struggle. Upon reaching Lynch, his arguments for peace fell upon deaf ears. This was in part because de Valera had not changed his original position much. He encouraged peace on the basis of accepting what was known as Document Number 2. This document, written by Amon de Valera, proclaimed Ireland completely free of England, meaning that it would remove the oath that precipitated de Valera's withdrawal from the Doyle, in exchange for ceding Northern Ireland. The document contains a lot of legalese, however, as it makes clear that they wouldn't legitimately recognize Northern Ireland. They would just agree to not try and do anything about it. As he was attempting to persuade the official leadership the pro-treaty government began executing anti-treaty soldiers in captivity. Amon called these executions among the blackest crimes in history. Lynch called for reprisal executions and stated that every member of the Doyle had blood on their hands. De Valera wrote the initial draft of Lynch's address which included references to the TD's guilt and suggesting that they be shot on sight. The first two murdered under the new policy were Sean Hales and Predrick O'Malley, who were gunned down on December 7, 1922. Each was shot leaving the Congress. The government responded with the execution of their four highest-ranking Republican prisoners. Eye-for-an-eye justice had become the order of the day. Operation Order 17 was subsequently signed by Lynch authorizing executions of any TDs, senators, army officers, legal officials, and senior enemy press officials if any more prisoners were executed. While Liam Lynch refused de Valera's overtures of peace, Amon proceeded to receive the pleas of Liam DC. D.C. had been captured by the government and sentenced to death. In exchange for an unconditional surrender and an attempt to sway his colleagues, he would be granted a stay of execution. De Valera was of two minds. At the beginning of February, he wrote to his colleagues that it must be death or glory for us now. By the end of the month, he wrote, Many good men have come to the conclusion that we have long ago passed the point at which we should have regarded ourselves as beaten. The stalemate in his conflicting thoughts was broken by the Vatican. The provisional government had convinced the Catholic hierarchy to condemn the rebels' actions and deny them from receiving the sacrament of communion. Within a month of this decision, the rebel leadership convened at the Nyer Valley in the Camara Mountains. Presuming that something was afoot, the meeting was constantly interrupted by free state search parties. De Valera supported an ending of the hostilities, but was defeated by a 6-5 vote in favor of Lynch. He was given permission, however, to seek out the other side, to find out if there was a possible basis for peace. Leaving the mountains was an unpleasant experience for Amon. He wrote that on the first night that he got drenched to the skin through overcoat, leather jerkin, etc. Wettest night I ever experienced, falling at every step, misled by the guide, ignored stepping stones and walked through the streams, stuck my left leg into a bog hole up to the groin, Arrived in the morning, clothes and leather jacket all ruined, rain soaked through, had to go to bed naked. The war was clearly wearing on him. A breakthrough occurred on April 6, when Lynch was shot and killed. The rebel meetings resumed on April 20th, and this time the motion to seek peace was accepted. De Valera released his peace plan and began negotiations with Andrew Jameson, the whiskey magnate and broker of the 1921 War of Independence peace deal. Jameson quickly came to the conclusion that de Valera would agree to any reasonable terms that would allow him to save face. As part of the deal, the rebels would stop fighting and turn in their weapons. Instead of handing them to the government, however, de Valera was able to negotiate a neutral building where Republicans would turn in their arms so that they could be reissued to their present holders after the next election. Always a tough negotiator, Amon asked for American funds released to aid Republicans in future elections. He also asked for the restoration of all seized property. Compensation for the Republicans for any war damage, despite the fact that they represented the losing side in the war, as well as the release of all prisoners and an end to censorship. Cosgrave, the leader of the Doyle at this point, regarded these proposals as long and wordy documents inviting debate where none was possible. One has to wonder what Amon would have asked for if his side was winning. The ceasefire and the removal of arms were accepted, however. Still, Amon's choice of words suggested that his mind had not been changed one iota. He sent a message to all rebel soldiers stating that, quote, "...the Republic can no longer be defended successfully by your arms. Further sacrifice of life would now be in vain. Military victory must be allowed to rest for the moment with those who have destroyed the Republic." The use of the word successfully suggests that they were at times winning the struggle. There's little to suggest that that was ever the case. The use of the phrase destroyed the Republic suggests that they were still convinced that they were the good guys in this story. In what will come next, there are a number of parallels with 1916. First, Amon will be briefly imprisoned. This time he'll be saved by a lack of evidence as to his actual role in the fighting. Secondly, he realizes that even though they lost militarily, he could win politically. Even though the ceasefire had been his idea, Amon remained hidden for months after the war had ended. He only emerged from the shadows to run as a candidate under the Sinn Féin name for his old seat in Clare County. He released a statement saying, If the people of Clare select me as their candidate again, I will be with them and nothing but a bullet will stop me. This wasn't conjecture. The IRA's Director of Intelligence had warned him that some of the Free State murder gangs had sworn to kill De Valera in retaliation for the death of Michael Collins. He met with his wife for one night and left her heartbroken and anxious in the morning, when he went to a planned public campaign event in Enos. The plan was to arrest him on the way to the event. After all, arresting Devalera in public would make excellent propaganda for him. Although it is impossible to believe, Amon somehow got onto the stage before any of the officers had recognized him. Why say that that is impossible? Amon was the hero of the 1916 rising. He had led the country through the War of Independence. He was the cause of the Civil War. It is safe to assume that everyone in the country knew of him. In public, Amon always dressed in a white shirt with a black tie underneath his traditional long black trench coat. Moreover, he was nicknamed the Longfellow because he was six foot three. Add in his glasses and top hat and you have the equivalent of Abraham Lincoln walking by unrecognized in America. Amon was so concerned about his public image that he refused to smile at events, even public rugby games. For his campaign event, he did not come in disguise, nor did he make any attempts to evade arrest. He did manage to speak for several minutes before the troops marched towards the platform with bayonets attached. They even fired into the air, causing a stampede that injured twenty. Even more incredible, the incompetent Irish guards that fired into the air as a warning managed to accidentally shoot four in the crowd. He was taken to Arbor Hill Prison. While there, he won re-election to the Doyle by a sizable margin. This is the second time in his life that he won an election while he sat in prison. The only evidence against the newly elected T.D. was a letter from De Valera to the Honorary Secretaries of his political party. Given all that has been said about De Valera's war guilt, a prosecution on the basis of this letter might well have seemed ridiculous, and the idea was quietly dropped. It turns out that his actual legal jeopardy during this time was related to his War of Independence actions while on tour in America. They had laundered millions of dollars back to Ireland, in the name of the unrecognized Free State of Ireland. Eleven months after his arrest, he was given his freedom, and all charges regarding the Civil War were dropped. You have to assume that Amon de Valera had learned his lessons. If you did assume that, then you haven't yet learned enough about this man. One of his first acts was to address an alternative parliament that he had set up during the Civil War. Showing that he had learned absolutely nothing from his experiences, Amon gave a lengthy account of the Civil War, including rehashing his accusation of the provisional government of carrying out a coup d'etat. These accusations, which amounted to an alternative set of facts, threatened to reopen wounds that had barely begun to close. Why not address the doyle itself? Although Amon had won his election, he was still refusing to enter the congress until the oath of allegiance to the king was removed. The cause of the civil war was still preventing Amon from participating. Those wounds were still open and bleeding in Northern Ireland, where Amon decided to sneak into a new re-town hall to address a Northern Ireland election meeting. He was sentenced to a month in prison in Belfast for the violation. Amon later confessed that of all the prisons that he had been in, Belfast was the worst, and also it was depressing and disheartening. Upon release, Sinn Féin, carrying the backlash from the Civil War on its name, underperformed in a number of side elections, and in 1925 Amon left the party, saying that I am now, from this moment, a free man. Although he spoke like a man leaving politics for good, it was instantly shown to be a smokescreen, Ashawn Lamasse, his right-hand man, publicly persuaded him that Ireland needed de Valera and suggested starting a new party. Pretending to be astonished, Amon de Valera said that I could not but agree with his logic. Once again, Amon was enhancing his public image as a reluctant politician. The new party was named Fianna Fall. It is suggested that Amon liked the name because it was impossible to translate. The closest suggestions are that it meant Warrior Bands of Ireland, or Soldiers of Destiny. The party attempted to capture the support of Irish Republicans while removing the stains of the Civil War. It had five stated aims. First, securing the political independence of a united Ireland as a republic. Secondly, the restoration of the Irish language and culture. Third, the development of a social system that would allow equal opportunity for the Irish to live a noble and Christian life. Fourth, the redistribution of land in Ireland. And fifth, making Ireland economically self-contained and self-sufficient. This last plank is going to lead to Amon's next war, the economic war, but we'll get there. De Valera was the unquestioned leader of Fianna Fall. Anyone who would have questioned him had already been left behind. It was autocracy by consent. The strategy to grow the party involved identifying and winning over one significant person in each parish, which normally was the leading IRA officer. They then watched as that individual flipped the rest of the parish for them. They started with next to nothing, including unfurnished offices and barely functioning second-hand cars. At this first party meeting, De Valera made clear that the party required absolute loyalty. Although many wanted to focus on the partition of Northern Ireland, Dev made it clear that they first had to gain control of the 26 counties of Southern Ireland before rectifying the border crisis. Absurdly, he even made it clear that if they couldn't achieve a united southern Ireland peacefully, they would turn to war. Dev's quote in his opening address was clear in this regard, stating that, quote, if the road of peaceful progress and natural evolution be barred, then the road of revolution will beckon and will be taken. The majority of their time, though, was spent talking about the oath to the king, that thus far had prevented all of their elected officials from having any influence in the government. Dan Breen, a Republican TD, broke ranks and took his seat on January 25, 1927. In Breen's words, It was pure waste of time and energy to sit outside the Doyle doing nothing and making bellicose speeches. When others asked him about what it was like to take the dreaded oath, he responded, I never saw an oath. There was an oath somewhere, but no one asked me about it. I just signed a book. I never read any formula. This admission, plus a theological smokescreen provided by the Catholic Church, would pave the path for de Valera's return to power. It began with the 1927 general elections. Phineas Fall fielded 86 candidates to Sinn Féin's 15, the clearest evidence that amon had cannibalized his first party with his second adding finia falls totals with those of other republican parties and amon would have a majority however kunumangile took three more seats than the upstart party giving them a 47 to 44 lead amon took the results to mean that they were close but would never become the majority unless they participated in government. On June 23, 1927, he announced that the Finia Fall representatives would claim their seats without submitting to any oath of allegiance to any foreign power. Announcing it ahead of time enhanced the publicity stunt, as they were met by Colonel Patty Brennan, who refused to let them enter without signing. Still it represented another propaganda win for the young upstart party. Looking for more monetary support, he used this event to ask his supporters in America to fund his legal challenges against the oath. Although he would later say that it was always his intention to rejoin the Doyle, De Valera's actions suggest otherwise. He expelled Finia Fall member Patrick Belton after the latter announced that he was going to sign the oath. The lure of power, however, was always too much for Amon. On the side, he was having secret meetings with the labor party, seeing if there was the possibility of coming to a coalition agreement. If he could get them to agree to a deal, he would have the majority needed to remove the oath once and for all. This meant that he was in a catch-22. The only way to remove the oath was to first take the oath. The coalition was agreed to on August 10th, based upon an understanding that they would immediately overturn Cosgrave's public safety and electoral amendment acts. De Valera attempted to write his way out of this dilemma regarding the oath. A draft from the party attempted to explain how entering the Doyle did not contradict their previous position because the oath was, in the words of de Valera, merely an empty political formula which deputies could conscientiously sign without becoming involved or without involving their nation in obligation of loyalty to the English crown. On its face, this rewriting of his own history is absurd. De Valera fought the Civil War and refused to enter the Doyle for years only because of this oath. If it really was just an empty political formula, then all of his actions in the run-up to this moment scream of treason rather than patriotism. For an empty political formula, de Valera was awfully dramatic about signing it. Finia Fall members arrived on the appointed day in groups of two and threes. De Valera made sure that he was the last to arrive, and made it clear in the Irish language that he believed that signing the oath was not real. He then read out a statement which translated as, I am not prepared to take an oath. I am not going to take an oath. I am prepared to put my name down in this book in order to get permission to go into the Doyle, but it has no other further significance. He then took the Bible off of the table that held the oath proceeded to cover the text of the oath with papers that he was carrying, and thus he signed the book. After he was done, he promised the crowd that one day he would see that the book was burnt. Four days later, the labor leader called for a vote of no confidence in the Cosgrave government. The Whip believed that Phineas Fall had a narrow 74 to 70 advantage in the vote that would follow. With some votes to spare, they allowed one member to travel to Canada and two more off for party business. When it came time to vote, however, the opposition had members surprisingly return for the vote, and when the votes were cast, they were tied at 71 apiece. Phineas Fall and Labour frantically began counting their members. By their count, they should have had a requisite seventy-two votes. But John Jinks was nowhere to be found in the chamber. A mad dash search of the premises was ordered. There were even fears that he had been kidnapped for the vote. He was eventually found at the bar that amazingly resides within the Doyle. But it was too late. The vote had passed and the cold feet of John Jinx meant that de Valera had taken the oath for nothing. He was once again a minority member of the Doyle. Party Whip Gary Bolin later said that the loss was a blessing in disguise. He claimed that Fall knew nothing about parliamentary procedure of the science of government. The next five years as the opposition party was an apprenticeship for the government. De Valera would also develop a new weapon for all fronts in his personal war for independence. The Irish Press came into existence in 1928. De Valera used money from his American contacts and pooled together all of their shares in his name to gain control of the paper. He was the controlling director, editor-in-chief, and managing director of the paper. This allowed him to appoint all staff and to dictate editorial policy for the paper. The idea for a paper had come out of the last few months of the Civil War. Amon had become convinced that the only reason that they had lost was incorrect slash unfair coverage from the papers. In his mind, They would have won if people had only understood the arguments for their cause. The motto for the Irish press was to provide the Irish people with a paper which would give them the truth in news, without attempting to color it for party purposes. This, however, was a joke, as the Irish press became the mouthpiece for the party of de Valera. It took the next two years to get up and running But by 1931, Amon's carefully chosen words were being delivered to the doorstep of 100,000 Irishmen. One of the hooks that made the paper successful was the creation of an abnormally large sports section, very much akin to what is in the papers today. The 1930s become remembered as the interwar years during which the world powers failed to contain the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazi fascism. In the moment, however, the questions the most individuals were asking, including in Germany, were about the precipitous decline in the economies of the world. The Great Depression spread like wildfire across Europe. By 1931, two years after it had begun, Ireland was feeling its effects in the form of reduced agricultural exports. Southern Ireland had always been an agrarian center. In fact, one of the large differences between the South and Ulster was the lack of industry in the southern 26 counties. Belfast's claim to fame remains to this day that they built the unsinkable Titanic, a ship that famously sank. De Valera sought policies that would change this economic imbalance between the North and the South. Moreover, Finna Fall was designed to be a big tent political party that leaned to the left on many social issues, but was definitely fiscally conservative. Amon's government passed a number of budget-saving measures, but the 1930s in Ireland are defined by his policies that resulted in the economic war with England. But before he could start another war, he had to claw his way back into power. That opportunity came in 1932. Economics were the top line issue for the parties involved. The New York Times said De Valera was arousing emotions and enthusiasms strangely like those Adolf Hitler is spreading through Germany. That enthusiasm extended to the polls. Fall would receive 44.5% of the first place votes, and become the most popular party in Ireland, a spot that they would not relinquish for the next 79 years. They were only 5 seats short of a majority, and their traditional allies in labor had taken 7 seats. Amon was now 50 years old. It had been ten years and two months since de Valera resigned leadership over the treaty vote. His first thought upon returning to power was to remove the oath and burn the book, but would have to wait, as economic considerations were first and foremost in the party's mind. Upon returning to office, Amon was handed a bill from the British regarding accrued land taxes. Upon searching for the agreement in question, all that could be found was an unsigned document that was mostly patches and shreds. According to the British, however, it required the fiscally conservative Fall government to transfer millions to the crown. Amon refused to pay. In sit-down meetings with then-Prime Minister Ramsey MacDonald, he suggested that he might be willing to pay the tax, if the dreaded oath was removed. After months of back-and-forth debate, Amon agreed to pay, if Ireland was allowed to come into external association with the Commonwealth. Incredibly, this was the exact same position that he had taken in 1921. Lloyd George absorbed from a distance that he has not changed one iota from that position. It is a clear demand from which Mr. de Valera has never swerved for one day. He is that type. He will never change right to the end." The British once again refused to fall for this line about external association, no matter how many circles Amon drew to explain it to them. Failing to secure an agreement, the tax was withheld, and the economic war had begun. As did everything else in his life, The economic war had its foundation set in Amon's struggle for Irish independence from the British. The Irish economy was wholly dependent upon exports to Great Britain, particularly in the field of agriculture. This was because half of the Irish population was engaged in the business of agriculture, and 90% of the Emerald Isles exports came in the form of agricultural commodities. De Valera felt that this dependence could and would be used as a weapon against future Irish independence movements. Thus, he sought to divest his economy from England's. His policies were protectionist, and it was clear from the beginning that it was going to hurt Ireland. But he saw a silver lining even in this, stating that the resulting reordering of our economic life will in the long run relieve us from the position of dangerous dependence on the British market, a position which the British now think they can use to compel us, to bow us to her will. This would not be an easy task for the Irish, and Amon had to acknowledge that citizens might not like bread that was made using Irish wheat. He even stated that they would have to develop a taste for it, for as he stated, the nation cannot survive without protection. Amon fired the first shot in the economic war by placing tariffs on goods from England. The justification for this was the same as the justification for any protectionist policy cheap goods from England were crowding out the native industries. Raise the prices on the foreign goods, and the belief was the native industries would emerge to fill the need. There are a lot of assumptions here, however, as there are distinct reasons why many industries reside where they do. His policies were destined to backfire. Although Amon could build factories, he could not change the fact that Ireland would be dependent upon other nations for the importation of raw materials to run those factories. Instead of making Irish cars, they would instead be assembling foreign cars in Ireland. Noted British economist John Maynard Keynes questioned whether Ireland was large enough to ever be self-sufficient. In his professional estimation, the smartest course of action for Ireland would be to always remain on positive trade terms with the English. As his policies increased unemployment, Amon turned to his conservative Catholic beliefs regarding the role of women in society. The previous government had introduced a marriage bar for female teachers. This meant that any female teacher that got married was forced to resign from her job. Amon extended this rule to all government positions, thus freeing up jobs for men. He also interfered with the press. Although the Irish press was favorable to all things de Valera, the other papers were unceasingly negative about the government. He responded by creating the Government Press Bureau, a position designed to censor free speech. Amon also had the government pull significant advertising dollars from papers, which gave negative or faulty coverage. He couldn't hide the toll that the economic war was having upon his citizens, however. Amon delivered terrible news to farms, saying that, so far as I can see, the British market is gone forever. The standard of living among farmers declined by 15% in the immediate years of the war. Sean Lamass informed the party that the crisis facing them rivaled that of the potato famine. The economy and the Irish people were saved by trickery. In 1933, Ireland began negotiations with Germany for the importation of coal. These talks broke down within three days, but the British had no way of knowing this. German coal happens to be more sulfurous than British coal, and if Germany supplanted them in this market, it would mean that all furnaces would have to be altered for the German coal. It meant that Britain would never gain back this market. Britain fell for Ireland's bluff, and agreed to the Coal Cattle Pact, in which Ireland agreed to import all of its coal from Britain in return for a 16% increase in cattle exports from Ireland. This deal directly helped to avert famine in Ireland. The economic war would last until 1938, when de Valera was able to negotiate its end through talks with Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. World War II was on the horizon, and Chamberlain was convinced that Ireland might be the key to winning. For de Valera, the economic war had been a necessary evil. Despite the hardship, support for Finia Fall increased throughout the economic war. De Valera was able to leverage the coverage of the press to convince all those involved that Ireland would be better off in the long run. The storm brewing on the shores of continental Europe would once again change the narrative, and Amon de Valera would be there to set the course for Ireland's independent